Welcome to season three of This Is Me. My name is Katie Matten and in the previous two seasons, Siobhan met everyday Australians and they shared with us their life-changing moments. In this new season of This Is Me, we have 10 inspiring stories that will hopefully let you walk a mile in someone else's shoes. If you have a story you'd like to share, you can DM us at This Is Me Podcast on Instagram. Hi, my name is Rachel Sade. I am a personal trainer and a podcaster by trade, and I suffered severe postnatal depression. There's some stains on your photo. They all cracks on your rusty frame. So, Rach, we're good friends. We've been very close friends for a few years now. Yes. I want to just set up for anyone that doesn't know you a brief background of where you came from, who you are. So you started life in Adelaide. Yeah. So born and bred, South Aussie girl. We lived in a small country town, two and a half hours out of Adelaide for, I would say, a good part of the middle years growing up so I was a little farm girl we had three horses and I rode motorbikes of such a tomboy I have three brothers and then we moved to Townsville so we went from regional South Australia um, to far north Queensland and I moved up there when I was the start of grade seven Um, my mum and dad separated when I was 14 my dad moved back to South Australia then it was pretty much my my brothers and my mum and I in Townsville, you know, life was good. Um, It was fun. I was extremely active. I played netball all the way through. I never stopped playing netball. I can't imagine ever stopping playing netball. Um, And I was lucky enough to get offered a scholarship with the QAS for netball. And it couldn't have come at a better time because it gave me uh, purpose. It gave me structure. It gave me routine I had to train every day, you know, like it gave me a real purpose and it was to be the best that I could possibly be. Um, So that was about 16, 16 to 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. And I tried to live the, no, no, I'm cool. I can be cool and go to parties and, you know, start experimenting with drinking and boys and at 16, you know, but I really couldn't find the balance of being able to do that but then perform an elite level for my age group. I had a run-in with my coach at the time. You know, you have really influential people come into your life at different times and she was one of them. She really shaped me in those formative years. I was really lucky to have her. She was like ball breaker. She was a hard ass. She never took no or I can't as an answer. It was just like you couldn't even use the words which was great. And um, she kept me on the straight and narrow. I still, don't get me wrong, I still had fun like most other 16-year-olds, but I had to really pull my head in. Yeah, so I did that and then got to where I could absolutely be at in terms of netball in Townsville. Um, Got to all the top levels that I could be. And the next stage from there was to go to Brisbane. Did you want to be a professional netball player? That's what I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to do. And so I worked and worked and worked. I saved and saved and saved. I broke the news to my mum once I'd graduated high school. I'm going to the big smoke. I'm moving to Brisbane. 
And then at that stage in her life, she sort of looked at me and went, well, I'm coming too. And I was like, um, I don't know, that's, that wasn't a part of my plan. <laughs> now, while you were at school in Townsville, you were friends with a guy that a lot of people, I guess, in Queensland would know. Yeah. And that is your future husband-to-be, <laughs> Sam Thiday. Yeah. So we met in grade eight when we went to high school. And it's been a friendship from grade eight that, you know, they're few and far between. Don't get me wrong. We've had some really big Roller coaster moments, some ups and downs, some time apart from each other, um, and all the rest. But you know, f- first and foremost, the foundation of our friendship started in grade eight. Grade nine, he asked me to formal, uh, which was for grade twelve. We dated for a week in grade eight, but I dumped him because he was um, a mute. He wouldn't talk to me. But as soon as I dumped him, he started talking to me, and it was really weird. Um, so we sort of just went, "Look, we're meant to be friends," and we were. We were just literally best friends. I was always very um, structured with school. I knew I wanted to finish. I knew I wanted to do well. And, you know, that was always a thing for me. For him, he played football. He excelled within football. And then he was about to drop out in grade 10. And I was like, no, 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 that's not a part of your journey. You've got to finish school. We can't be mates. (laughs) You've got to finish school. There's a reason why you're here. Like you show up every day. Come on, it's not footy. You've got to have an afterlife sort of path in case football doesn't ever work, you know, like you just, you have to, it's a part of it. So he stayed, you know, and I was like, who am I going to go to formal with if you drop out now? You know, we're in grade 10. So you had a very sensible head on your shoulders for a teenager. always. Because you are a very confident woman now. Yeah. Do you think you had that confidence back then as well? Looking now at 35, you look back and you go, shit, I probably look at a few things and go, geez, there was some warning signs there. There was some definite warning signs. There was some definite moments in my teenage years where I just wanted to let go. I didn't want to be routined. I didn't want structure. I just wanted to let go and see what it felt like to spiral. And I wanted to see what it felt like to lose control. And I don't know whether that's a teenage thing, whether it was given what had happened to me and my story so far. You know, 14, I had a few run-ins with boys that probably shouldn't have happened. That can play a really big part to who you are as a young woman. And, you know, my father then left. That was a big part of who I was at that time. You know, it broke my heart. And at the time when you're 14 and 15 and 16, you've got big emotions. You already got big emotions. Did you keep a good relationship with your dad when he moved back to South Australia? No. You know, I went from being, and, you know, this is probably, this is close to my heart, is that I went from being his princess because there was three boys and myself. And so I have two older brothers, then myself, and then my younger brother. So I was always very protected. I couldn't really step out of line too far because I had either one or the other pull me back in line or my dad. You know, my mum was always there, but it was different. You know, I had these men sort of surrounding me to go, you're not going to fall very far. That provides a level of confidence to anyone. And then at 14, it all changed. He left, um, you know, there was turmoil between him and I as to why he left and how he left. You know, he was hurting. I look at it now and go, at 35, I can say this now openly. He was hurting. He's human. Yes, he's my father, but at the end of the day, he's a human. and He did the best job that he knew at the time, given the skills that he had. Um, It broke me, broke my heart. 
I probably from that time pushed back so heavily on males that I was like, nah, you don't need them in your life. You know, I have three brothers. I'm very supported. I have supportive uncles and, you know, all of that stuff. So I really pushed back. So my relationship with my dad was very tainted from 14. I think as kids as well, when you have parents that split up, you kind of blame one or the other and side with one or the other. You know, and this is the interesting part now, obviously being married and having two children and then, you know, there's rocky parts in every relationship I can look back now and say I never blamed them, but my relationship with my own father really didn't. I think I got to a peak of about 21. I think I hit 21 and I just hadn't dealt with it. And so for me, on an emotional sense, I hadn't dealt with a thing. I'd come to Brisbane. I was playing um, state league netball. I was busting my ass like seven days a week we were training and it was awesome. I was 21. I was invincible, but I was also playing elite netty. I was partying, I was being crazy, you know, like I was being true 21-year-old. But underlying was just the fact that I'd never dealt with my dad leaving, never dealt with the hurt and the, you know, the feelings as a 14-year-old girl, what that felt like. And I'd sort of banked it up, 14 to 21, like it's a long time. So then my body shut down. It was Thursday, I was at work at the bank and the Saturday we had semi-finals. I was the fittest I'd ever been, Katie. The fittest, I was fierce. I had all these bruises all over my legs though. I thought it was just netty and they were just not going away, but it'd been eight weeks and I'd look like I was bruised head to toe. Thought nothing of it. Had a few broken blood vessels come up, one came up on my face. Now as a 21 year old girl, I was extremely vain and I went straight to the doctor and said, what's this? And why is this? And this was in my lunch break. And he was like, look, we'll do some bloods. Everything's fine. 30 minutes later, I get a phone call from the doctor. Please come back. And I was like, oh, shit. God, I hope I'm not pregnant. Got down there and my life changed. My body was shutting down. I was not dealing with anything emotionally. I'd suppressed all my emotion from 14 to 21 and pushed it down. And I sat with this strange doctor that I'd never met before in my life, in my lunch break. And he said to me, I've got really bad news. And straight away in my heart, I was like, please don't tell me I'm pregnant. I'm not going to deal with that. And then he he sat there and he goes, I think you've got leukemia. And I went, oh, well, I'm not pregnant. So, you know, like, you know, as 21, you do, you just try and make a joke out of it. I said, well, I'm definitely not pregnant. So that's a good start. And he's like, you're not taking this seriously. He's like, your blood count. I've got an ambulance on standby waiting to take you to the hospital now. And I said, oh, I can't. I've got work, you know, like I've got semifinals on Saturday. Like I don't have time to be sick right now. Are you sure it's really the, you know, is that the results? How can you sit here and say, you think I've got leukemia? He goes, look, you've got one of two choices. I'm not giving you an avenue here. It's either you take yourself to the hospital, you have someone pick you up now, or I've got an ambulance on standby ready to take you to the Royal. Now at 21, I didn't know what to do with myself. I, I think I literally went numb. I said, oh, I've got to go and get my handbag. Like I was working at the bank next door. I've got to go and get my bag. Did you What's understand what leukemia was? I understood what it was. In my mind, though, like I, I was fine. I was healthy. And he's sitting there going, no, no, no. If you play netball in two days and you get one more knock, you'll die from bleeding internally to death. 
One more knock. She, he said, you shave your legs tonight and cut yourself. You'll bleed to death. He said, your platelets are at, my platelets were at 10. Normal adult platelet level within our blood. And the platelets are obviously what, you know, keep our blood count together and all the rest. Anyone's normal platelet sits between 200 and 400 count. Mine were at 10. And he was just like, you can't, like, you, you've got to go. And so I just remember going numb. I remember walking through the city. There were so many people. It was lunchtime and it was chaos. And I just remember feeling like I was the only one in there. I wasn't crying. I was just numb. I walked upstairs. I got my bag. I had to go and see my manager. Now, my manager at the time, he was an amazing man. And he still is to this day an amazing man in my life. And I looked at him and I said, I'm really sorry. I've just, I've got to go to the hospital because... And it wasn't until then that I sort of broke down and I sort of said, I have to go because he just told me I have leukemia. And my boss, the most kindest human, he looked at me, he started crying. And it wasn't until he started crying that I started crying going, is this true? And he was just like, Rachel, you, you got to go. And so I had to ring my mom and go, hey, mom. <laughs> she was at work, I remember her. And I said, can you? come pick me up. I've got to go to the hospital. And she's like, bloody hell, Rachel, you know, I'm at work. What's happened? And she's having a giggle. She's thinking, and I was like, well, I'm not pregnant, but the doctor just said that I've got leukemia. She just went completely like blank and then just burst out into tears. And I said, you got to come pick me up or I've got to get in the ambulance. I said, but I don't want to go in the ambulance. I'm not dying. And she was like, I'll be there. You like, she she worked 45 minutes away. She, I'll be there. I'll be there. I can't remember even those 45 minutes. Like, I think I fully blanked out. Fast forward six weeks later, I'm still in the oncology ward at the Royal Brisbane. Now an amazing You've been there for six weeks. Six weeks. Six weeks. And my dad never turned up, not once. My dad sent me flowers for the first time because I was in hospital, supposedly with leukemia. Didn't come visit. You know, now, like, it's taken me a long time to process, right? And I have a giggle and go, you know, you get to 35 and you want to fix the broken adult that you are from the childhood that you had. My dad didn't know any better. He had a tough upbringing. I don't know, maybe now... I sort of look at it and I feel a little bit of sympathy for him. Do you think he didn't know how to handle it? Yeah, I just don't think he, I don't think he had the capacity to even probably comprehend. His way of dealing with things was to always run away. You know, he worked away. He always provided in his mind, may always provide for the family and that's what he did, you know, but that meant he was always away. So he just didn't even come up, you know, like, and, you know, still... As a 21-year-old, that little bit of a, that 14-year-old girl that just waited for that door to open every day, thinking he's going to come. He'll for sure come. But never, never came. And, um, you know, the positive out of this was that I had this gentleman in my room. We had to share a room. And now I look at it and I always called him my guardian angel um, because he, um, uh, every morning... Every morning, this man, this stranger, he was in his 60s. And now, remember, he's in his 60s. He's quite sick. I didn't know what he had. He never, ever let on that any day was too hard. And he'd pull back the curtain between our beds every morning at like 6 a.m. And the sun would be rising and he'd be like, come on, (laughs) wake up. He's like, it's a brand new day. 
look at the sunrise. We'll watch the sunrise together. He's like, every day is a brand new day. You can achieve anything because it's a new day. And I remember going, man, I've got to get the fuck out of this room. I've got to get out. He's driving me nuts. <laughs> and at 21 for the first week, I was like so down and out, sad and sorry for myself. How, how could this happen to me? And this man every morning, he was so resilient. He turned up for me every day. He pulled back shit every day and never, ever, ever let on that he was sick, he was hurting, he was down, he was out. Never, you know, he spent six weeks building me. And it all came out and I came out with an autoimmune disease, which is ITP, which was basically my own body was shutting down my own platelets. It was seen as foreign and shutting them down. I had to do a lot of testing, a lot of, you know, there was radiation, there was bone marrow testing. There was a lot of hard days in there. Was there any kind of relief, although you were being told the bad news that it was an autoimmune disease, were you relieved that it wasn't leukemia? So relieved. I had five doctors working on me for six weeks because they just, they'd never seen anything like it. So the positive was I came out with an autoimmune disease that could be managed. I had a a brilliant relationship with my gorgeous oncologist um, who I have to go back and see once a year. The lesson in life is, you know, rather than seeing this with regret and with heartache and with all of that, I had to look at it and go, what am I learning from this? You know, what was my life lesson? Now I learned every day that there was going to be a new day and that tomorrow you could do anything. Are you still in contact with that guy from the hospital? Oh, Katie, this will probably wear our break. Um, Every day for the last three weeks, we both had realised that we loved these chicken wings from the cafeteria. And because I was getting better, I never asked him why he couldn't. And so I would go and get chicken wings for us every day from the cafeteria because I was allowed to go and come back. And... um, so it was that thing, right? And now I'm addicted to chicken wings, always have been. And um, I went back to see him like a, um, a week and a half later after I got discharged. And I went in to see him and I had my bag of chicken wings. I was so excited to see him. And I went back in and the nurse said, I'm so sorry. And I just said, what? Like, what? And she was like, he had... He had cancer on the spine, like he was so sick. I said, but he, but he never, you know, because we came like home, you're there for six weeks, you knew everyone. I said, but he never, he never told me. And she said, yeah, he was just such a stoic man. And I was like, but, you know, so I always look and go, he was my guardian angel and he taught me so much that every day anything's possible. Every day you turn up and every day you watch that sunrise like it's your last you know he taught me that so my life lesson was so big in that at 21 and you know I'm forever grateful for that beautiful soul he lost his battle but what a massive impact he's made on your life yeah an imprint on the rest of my life There was a few big years between 21 and now and I knew I always wanted to travel and that was a good turning point was far out, life's short, right? I have to do it now if I'm going to do it. And I love Nepal and it will always be there. But the recovery process was quite long and quite lengthy and it, I had to build back up a lot of areas of my body. 
from the steroids I was taking, from, you know, the time of being in there. I had to rebuild. I did. I went and did my first travel overseas, went and did five weeks in Europe by myself. Whenever the seatbelt sign is on, you must have your seatbelt securely fastened. And I had a ball and I was like, holy shit, there's so much to travel. This travel is good for your soul. So then 23, I moved to the Middle East. I um, got a job, packed up my life and got a job as cabin crew to move to Abu Dhabi and did two and a bit years over there um, as cabin crew traveling the world. And I learned and I experienced and, you know, I said travel is good for the soul. Nothing can give you that soul experience than travel. You live, breathe and learn who you truly are. Um, So I did that for two and a half years, came back. And now, mind you, I did meet this young boy in grade eight and we have remained friends this whole time and Sam being Sam the persistent person that he is he just didn't let up and he was like we should be together and I'm like no no at this stage I'd formatted myself so well that I was like no I never want to get married did you chat as friends regularly while you're away yeah he'd call me no matter where I was in the world he'd call me for hours I was like, don't you have a life? Like, <laughs> here I am traveling the world. Mind you, he was here doing what he loved, that he was passionate about and formatting his life. He loved football. That was his jam. You know, everyone's got a story. Everyone's, you know, when you find that thing that you're passionate about, it's bloody exciting. So he was here doing that that whole time. Was he playing for the Broncos then? He was playing, yeah, he was playing for the Broncos then. He had already made his debut for Australia. He'd already in that time made his debut for the State of Origin for the Queensland team, which is a bloody big deal in Queensland. Mm. Well, the teams have been chosen and the battle lines drawn for next week's State of Origin opener in Sydney. The Maroons have named and the squad. Yeah, so then when I experience. came back, he was like, you know, we should be together. And I was like, no, I don't need any mail. <laughs> and let alone I don't want to ruin what we have in terms of a friendship. Anyway, one night we were at a party and I said to him, right, I'll go on a date with you. I want to be wined and dined. I want to go back to the start. I don't want you to just go, oh, this is it because we're friends. I want to experience all of it. And I hadn't been on many dates because I just didn't want to. It wasn't my thing. So we went on a date. We sat at Gambaro's for three hours and we barely talked. It was so awkward. From there we sort of went on another date and you sort of went, it's kind of easy because you did have that friendship. So, yeah, then we got engaged. Just got engaged on the weekend. It was uh, kind of cute. She said yes. I actually had to ask her twice because she was mm-hmm. too busy crying, but she did say yes in the end. Most footballers, you'll find that their engagements and their, and their weddings are at October, November, December, whenever they drop out, <laughs> if they make finals or not. Um, you know, if they're going away for the Australian team at the end of the year. So ours was all based around that. So we had a quick turnaround in April. We got engaged and then we were married in December. Was it a big wedding? It's a whirlwind. Uh, 120 people. Yeah, big. It was huge. We had no plans for babies. We just wanted to spend time together as you do. We went on a honeymoon. Everything happened quite fast. We didn't plan to have babies but you know as you do sometimes babies choose when they want to come through um I was on the pill um and we still felt pregnant really yeah so I always laugh and go children pick you right you're already chosen I was on the pill you know we were using all types of methods of not falling pregnant because I just didn't I hadn't even 
seen myself as being a mum. Like it was not on my radar. We had like this five-year plan of like, what are we going to do? You know, all this stuff together. And we fell pregnant with Gracie. And it took me 13 weeks to even sit with the idea. I think I cried for that. And this is really honest for me because there are a lot of people out there that, you know, I never fall pregnant, which makes me really sad and, um, you know, or have such a hard time falling pregnant. And I sat with that for so long going, you're so selfish, you know, like you have fallen pregnant naturally. And it wasn't until my obstetrician really pulled me back into line. Can I make you so right? I was so focused on the wrong things, you know, instead of turning up and uh, and appreciating every day that it was. I also was bloody sick, so sick for the first 15 weeks. So that puts a bit of a dampener on things. You're miserable because you're just so sick. It was a really smooth pregnancy. I got induced at 40 weeks because footy was on, so we had to be induced. I had an amazing, amazing obstetrician whom I, I love to death. And he was just like, like, Rach, come on, we're going to have to make a decision because I can't let you go. If we let you go over a week, Sam's going to be away. <laughs> um, and I won't let you go longer than a week over. And so, you know, it was all around Sam and football, uh, when he was going to be here and when he was going to be away. And it was for Australia. So it was a big thing. I was encouraging it too. Don't get me wrong. I was like, no, 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 you can't miss this. It's an Aussie tour. You have to. I think people don't realise as well that when it's professional – sport like elite athletes mm. they have to do it yeah it's his you job. can't just say oh yeah. can I have a couple of weeks off yeah I'll join you yeah. in two weeks <laughs> it was it was super it was a busy time it started the season you know it's like that April time so we were getting induced so Sam dropped me off on the way to training he dropped me off to the hospital to get induced and I remember at like 6 a.m going I don't think I want to do this. And my mum was there, luckily. My mum was there to cover the morning shift for Sam while he went to training. And I was like, oh, no, I don't, want, I don't, I don't think I want to have a baby today. You know, like I don't, I don't, I can't do this. I can't do this. I think most women would go through that. can't do this. Um, but being induced because we had no real choice, you know, before he had the game on Friday night and then had to go on the Sunday. Um, so we got induced. Everything was fine. I got as far as I could through the day. Sam moseyed back in at about lunchtime after he'd had lunch with the mate on the way back to the hospital. Um, and I'd got to the point with my mum, I remember going, oh, just I can't bear the pain anymore. I think I have to have an epidural. Like, I've given it my best shot, but, you know, this is tough. These, you know, these women that are doing this with nothing is so, t- so tough. And uh, so I had an epidural and everything was going smooth. I was sitting there reading a magazine going, far out, this is easy. I wonder if people want to do this. It all went south after that. And um, during the process of babies being born, they do another turn. And I didn't know any of this because you do, you, as you, you don't know, you're just learning as you go. She's just overturned the canal on the way out. So there's something that you couldn't ever foresee. Like we couldn't have... My hips just didn't do what they were meant to do for childbirth and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So long story short, 16 hours later, we're in an emergency C-section. I was turning myself inside out. The epidural had stopped working down one side of my body. I was still contracting. I'd been pushing for an hour. Emergency C-section. Baby comes out. Mum's in distress. But all is well. Mum and baby are healthy. Everything's good. And that's the blur of babies, you know, like that's where it all started. And you have that moment where you're like, Wow, I made that. And she was so special. Holy shit, she blew my mind. She was so special. She still is. 
Gracie and I headed home. My brother, luckily, he drove us home and, you know, started the journey of being a parent. Sam was away for the first week and a half, which, you know, I feel for him too because that's a pretty rough thing to do, right? I was in such a blur. Like that first six weeks of babies is a blur. I feel like there's a haze over your head almost and you're just like <laughs> just muddling through shit because you don't know what you're doing. Especially with your first one, you don't know what you're doing. To say the baby blues really exist, they do. Baby blues do exist. They should be given a lot more light because they're um, they can be heavy and they can actually not just be the day three when your milk comes in. I remember probably week three of just going, you know, I still haven't left the house. <laughs> still don't want to. Um, what if was a big one for me. What if? What if something happens? What if she cries? What if she needs a feed out in public? But my mum was there. Like I said, I had the support of my mum and my mum could see the warning bells, but she didn't say anything. So she was the one that pushed the barrier a little bit with our firstborn. You know, come on, Rach. It's 10 minutes around the block. It's all we're going to do. And that's what it started as, you know, and I looked like a wreck. I always remember going, do I look fine? Like I had this pregnancy maternity dress on, that Bond's dress that was black. But when I walked out, it was not black. It had spear stains and all the rest. And my mum, being my mum, yeah, it looks great. Come on, let's go. Just 10 minutes around the block. We don't have to stop. We don't have to talk to anyone. She's happy. You fed her. You know, you ticked all those boxes. And then the next day was 10 minutes around the block and maybe a takeaway coffee on the way past. My eldest brother came up. And he was like, Rach, we've got to go to the shops, you know, you've got to get it. I want to buy her something, you know, and it was all that stuff. And I remember this overwhelming, like it was, I was so overwhelmed going, I can't, I can't go to the shops. I can't, I can't take her out. She'd just drink milk. I felt like all I did was sit on that couch and just, she just drank milk for the first eight weeks of her life and she was growing well and everything was going well. So it was good, right? So I came out of that quite quickly. So two years later, two years later, felt we, pregnant again. Yeah, Gracie was near two. We were just getting her out of nappies, and I said to, I remember saying to Sam, "If I get her out of nappies, and she's out of nappies, and we haven't fallen, I think I'm okay. I don't want to do it again." And he was just like, "You know, we both come from really big families." In his mind, he was like, "No, no, no, we can't have one. This is the compromise between you know husband and wife, or you know partners. We can't just have one. You can't." You know, society, you can't have one. She'll be spoiled. And I remember just in my heart going, but you know, as a mum, you just know your quota. Now I I can't imagine Gracie ever not having a sibling, now seeing them together. Um, but she um, maybe subconsciously I knew where I was headed you know, with the second. <sighs> I was not the same. I was, I was just not the same. We fell pregnant and everything was good. And then I was really sick for 20 weeks and it was shit. <laughs> Trying to be still upbeat for a toddler. You know, we had some things at 20 weeks. Our scans didn't go well and, you know, they were worried about all this stuff was showing up around her heart. So we had a few complications with that. So that added a little bit of stress. Worst case scenario is when the baby's born, we'll just have to take it straight in for surgery. 
and this would be, you know, the outcome. And I was like, oh, that's big, you know, 21 weeks. You're thinking, that's not fair for the baby. You know, that's not fair. That's shit. And um, so I think I always say, I think that just was, you know, an added little part to it. But um, 38 weeks, 38 and a half weeks. So this one was a planned C-section, right? My obstetrician had said, I respect that you want to try and do it again naturally, but you cannot. (laughs) We're going to end up in the same situation. I just really want to try, but I I didn't get to do the last one. I didn't finish the last one properly. You know, I started and that's not fair. I really wanted, I really wanted. So there was another little odd that start, you know, that was against me of going, he just went, no, Rachel. He goes, I've been in this game a long time and, you know, you don't need the stress of an emergency C-section. Eight days out from my 30th birthday, I had another little bambino. It was the easiest. Like, you just walk yourself in two hours before and we're just going to have a baby in two hours. And I just remember getting myself up on the bed and going, fuck, this is not right. In my head, I'd already defeated myself. Instead of maybe thinking about it, going, I'm really lucky and I'm blessed and my baby's nearly getting to meet my baby. And then... Um, you know, I've spoken about this openly, uh, and it's not anything towards Sam. It was just where my headspace was at already. This is not a reflection upon my husband. There's nothing around this other than he made a comment. He made a stupid comment when they first brought the baby out. And, you know, the other thing is, as a mother, you're like, there's a little part of you that wants, you know, the twin pair, you know, the I wanted to, you know, give him a little boy and and then they brought Elsa, you know, into the world and and his first comment was, oh, it's a little girl, like he was besotted. And he goes, it's a little girl. He goes, that's okay, we can just try again. And I remember going, my insides are on the outside of me on this table. And I... You know, that was just another, in my mind, of where I was at at the time. It was just another setback of going, oh, fuck. I didn't come through with the goods. And now I know I did come through with the goods because Elsie is a ray of uh, sunshine. But at the time where I was at, it was just so heavy, you know. Yeah. And and he didn't mean anything by it. But I just remember he said, um, oh, far out. She's got some big shoulders on her. Like, he, he was already slinging jokes. And, um, and then from then, I always said, I felt like they took the baby out and then they put the postnatal in and they just sewed me back up. And from there, it just grew. It was so heavy. I remember being in recovery with her and I said to my mum, they bring the baby and put it on your boob and that's a part of the process. And I remember it so vividly with Gracie of going, holy shit, that really hurts. And uh, with Elsa, I remember saying to my mum, it's not the same. She's doing something funny. It's not the same. And uh, as you do, you know, you're in that situation. So you, I went with it, you know, and the pediatrician, no, there's nothing wrong with her. For the whole week they were in hospital, nothing wrong with her. And I'm going, there is, because I, I can feel it so different. 
it feels like her mouth is too tight. He's like, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. I said, what about like, maybe she's got a tongue tie. She, that's why she's like, she was making all these noises. No, nothing wrong. So no, you do that. You don't rock the boat. You go with it. The pediatrician knows best. Mm. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. Uh, so I went home and then she had a pretty rough start to life. We got home and she was five days old. And at 11 days old, she'd had a feed. I'd put her down in her bassinet. She was out where we all were. Everything was fine. And I turned around to just look at her as you do. And um, I looked down and, and she's frothing. 11 days old, she's frothing at the mouth. Um, and then she's going blue. And I was just like, fuck. What is going on? And it just went into meltdown, you know, like, call the ambulance. She's not breathing. Like, she's having a seizure at 11 days old. She's having a seizure. Call the ambulance. And I remember we're so lucky where we live. It's a little community. And I remember ringing this amazing doctor around the corner and going, come here now. My baby's dying. Can you come? Like, we're around the corner. Can you come? Just come. And she got there and I was a mess by then. And I just took her out and I remember Elsie was the same length of my arm and I just carried her out and I had her face down in my palm trying to like get the froth out of her mouth. And um, I handed her to this doctor and she just went white as a ghost and she's like, where's the ambulance? And I said, it's on its way, like it's on its way. Anyway, 11 days old, we were in the Lady Salento at the time. Um, we were in there for another 11 days after that. So she had severe bronch. So we had 11 days of hit and miss as to whether she was going to make it. She had tubes and she had, she couldn't breathe on her own. Like, oh man, it was a rough start for this poppet. And I think, you know, over that time you're, you're pretty stressed. You're just all about the baby. But at the same time, this seed in my stomach was growing and growing and growing. Fast forward a few more weeks and my anxiety was growing. Every afternoon about four o'clock, I'd start to see the sun start to come down. It would get worse and worse, right? This feeling of just going, fuck, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't want this baby. I can't do it. I cannot. It kills me now to say that I even had that thought of going, I don't want this baby. I do not want her. But that was the illness speaking, yeah. not you speaking. Was she a difficult baby at she, night? Did she cry a she lot? Cri- she cried every night. She cried from 4pm to like 10pm of having to like rock her to sleep, you know. And I think about it now and I was like, I had my, my eldest brother living with us at the time and Sam was in and out with footy. Mum was there. We'd literally rotate this baby, until she finally would go to sleep. And she was just so unsettled. So so you had exhaustion adding to it. You had a two-year-old that needed you. You know, the days, you know, you laugh about it and you joke and you go, the day's so long. But the days were fucking so long. And the nights were even longer. And I just remember that pit feeling in the bottom of my stomach of during the afternoon, like of knowing what you're in for. And you were already in that cycle. And I just remember going, I, I can't do it. Just give her to someone. Give her to someone that wants her. 
So many women struggle with postpartum depression and anxiety, and it goes so unrecognized. Um, women in general have a hard time reaching out and asking for help. They feel like they should be able to do everything um, from taking care of their home to their baby to keeping a full-time job in the postpartum period, and it can be very overwhelming. All at the same time, it's just still trying to maintain being a mum, being a wife, you know, keeping a game face on, you know, at the same time I go to bed and cry every night because I just didn't want to do it. And then um, I think in about 12 or well, I think it was about 14 weeks, I'd have been for my 11-week checkup with my paediatrician. He was like, yeah, she's good. She's good. And I was like, she's not. She's not good. I just know. You know, that intuition of a mother, you just know. And I was like, I just know nothing. It's just not right. It's not. I know it isn't. And, um, and he just still stood there and black and blue that you know tongue ties and upper lip ties were a fad and that they are not a real thing and it wouldn't be affecting her and and again I walked away going well if he says so and I think I just knew that there was something more anyway about 14 weeks I'd been back to my Cairo I was at breaking point and I walked in with Elsie and Gracie to have an adjustment myself but an adjustment for her and I remember breaking down on the table and I said to him I'm not leaving here until you fix her because I I can't do this and I don't want her and you and you know like I just put my everything into him to go you have to fix us and and he was like the most amazing person. He listened. He listened to me. And he could probably see, you know, shit that I hadn't even come to grips of where I was at myself personally. Postpartum depression affects one in seven new mothers and can leave them feeling a wide range of emotions, from being overwhelmed and anxious to empty and unfocused. But he listened and, and he goes, she's got a really, really strong tongue tie. And... Her upper lip is all joined, so she wouldn't even be able to be latching. No wonder she's probably got really bad reflux and wind. She's gulping air when she's trying to breastfeed. So we sat down and we, we broke down all this stuff, and I remember leaving there going, how do I fix it? Where do we go? What do we do from here? And my mum was there that day, and we all sat there and had a few tears, and we took her to this specialist, and we got them both lasered. And that was a turning point, hey? It was a big turning point. From that day, I always said I left with a different baby, but the biggest battle had started. I was pretty heavily weighed down with some postnatal that I hadn't even given air to yet because it was, you know, that seemed to be put on the back burner because I had, first and foremost, I had to work on my baby in trying to help her, you know, feed her. And she did, she slept differently. I never had acknowledged any feelings around depression or anxiety in my life ever so I gave it no light because I I saw it in myself only no one else no one else's journey or story but my story was I saw myself as coming across weak if I had given in to saying that I needed help uh, and that I had depression and I didn't know enough about postnatal at all 
because I just didn't think it was a thing for me. <laughs> and, you know, Sam knew nothing about it. I was oblivious to it. What was going on in your head? What was your head saying? Was, every day I'd battle the, the story that I'd learnt, which was to turn up and do the best job you could do every day, just for that day, just today, focus on today. For Sam, you know, I put on this face. Yeah, I've got it. You know, you don't have to get up. I, I'll do everything, you know. You're training, you're playing, you're travelling, you're providing. I'll do the rest, you know. I've got this, I've got this. So I'd sit awake at night or she'd cry like I'd I'd go up there and I'd turn I'd turn the monitor I'd turn the monitor off and just let her cry because I had nothing in me to want to pick her up. I had nothing in me at all left. Which is um you know it's a horrible feeling, Katie. From the outside the thigh days seem to have it all. Fame, successful careers, and two healthy children. But it's what Rachel Thiday was hiding on the inside that almost broke them. You think, you know, you brought this thing into the world. As a mother, you just want to protect and nurture and care for it. I, I had none of this. I had nothing. And I'd had it with the first one, so I didn't understand how it could be so different. So then again, I was really criticising myself. I was heavy head noise, <laughs> lots of head noise going on about um, no connection, and no feelings, none, numb. I was numb. Do you remember any particular time that was standout terrible? The night time, that feeling that I got in the pit of my stomach every afternoon when I'd see the sun start to go down and I knew that I was then going in. But I'd created that for myself, Katie. I, I didn't have to be I didn't have to be doing that for myself. I just saw that the, as being my role in the family at the time. I'd be like, fuck, you know, like it's nearly night time and I, I have to go through her crying again, sitting in the room sitting across from her and not knowing what to do even though I did know what to do but I had nothing in me to get up and do it so I was just like going I just can't do it so I just didn't do it I can't so I didn't and you know like it's pretty heavy I think uh, I got to a certain point and you know I wasn't I wasn't doing anything for me I hadn't been back to the gym I hadn't even been walking I hadn't I'd given up on everything right uh, I think there was a standout day where my my old brother <laughs> had got to his wits end with me, and he could probably, you know, laugh about it now because he probably saw it a long, a long time out before that. But he was like, "Get off your ass," and we're going outside. My brother's background is AFL; he's an AFL coach, and he could be a hard task. But he um, he could see that there was something so much further wrong with me. Uh, and I'm forever grateful for that because he literally dragged me out like a toddler throwing a tantrum of going, oh, my God, fuck, I'm not going out there. I don't need to go out there. I don't need to exercise. I don't need to do anything. I'm fine. You know, I laugh about it. Anyone that says I'm fine is so hiding something. <laughs> And I, uh, that was my ongoing line, I'm fine, I'm fine. And he dragged me out. We did 15 minutes and he put these gloves on my hands. 
And I remember going, I'm not boxing. Like, I'm so unfit. Like, I'm four months post having a baby. I can't do it. I'm not doing it. And he's like, you will. We're just going to hit the pads. That's all we're going to do. Don't have to do anything else. Just 15 minutes, Rach. And I remember literally going to ground like a toddler and just crying, going, I can't. You know, I can't. I cannot. And he said, I'll stand here until you do it. And you're not going anywhere and you can sit there until you do it. He knew me better than anyone. He knew my outlet was fitness. He knew my outlet was movement. It always has been. It has been my mental clarity for a lot of things in my life. And now I look back and I I still do it now. You know, I go for a run to get mental clarity. It started off as 15 minutes hitting the pads every day. And mind you, he's got a full-time job. So he's coming home doing this and then... 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 went to 20 and then 20 went to 25 and, you know, 25 before you know it. You know, this is weeks though. Like this is not a quick process. This is weeks. You know, I started to feel a bit more, I probably started to just feel a bit more. I could feel things. And that probably was a turning point of going, I think I really need some help. I did it my way, hey, I've always been that person, I do it my own way (laughs) and I know what my body responds to. So I took myself back to my acupuncture lady and I said to her, I need you to balance my hormones, my hormones are out of whack and postnatal is, you know, an imbalance of hormones. But I went back down and I said, I just need to balance my hormones, I can't, I can't get a grip of them, I can't get a grip of my head, I can't get a grip and she was like, great, I think. I think we're a little bit deeper this time and through acupuncture I obviously went and talked to someone and started talking to someone and then I think around eight or nine months I started to see the haze lift a bit I think that was about where I started to go fuck I can do I can I can do this but in saying that at about eight or nine months fuck the damage that I'd caused I felt like I caused you know, it still sits with me now because I always say that, you know, she didn't choose to come into this world with a mum that couldn't love and nurture her. And um, so I have this constant thing of trying to make up. I still do it now. I try and make up. I overcompensate with her because I feel like I let her down for the first 12 months of her life. You know, I still do pieces of work with for myself around it because I do. I overcompensate as a mum and we laugh about it all the time, but I fucking do it so badly. Um, I overcompensate with the both of them through my own doing or feeling like I lacked out on the two of them for the first 12 months of Elsie's life. And not only that, that was Gracie as well. I had nothing, I had nothing to give either of them. So yeah, I did it my way, Katie. I um acupuncture, you know, I reached out and finally asked for help. I told Sam I trained every day. And when I say trained, it wasn't about training hard, it was about training smarter. I listened to my body. On some days I couldn't box, I couldn't go for a run, I just needed vitamin D on my face. I needed to go back to basics. I needed to get out into the fresh air, I needed to walk in the grass with no shoes on. Yeah, it was a long process. Do you remember the time where you looked at Elsie and went, 
Jeez, I love you. <laughs> I'm back. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember to the point of what she was what she was wearing, where she was, what she was doing. I still have the same video and I watch it all the time. Yeah, but she was so she was so happy. She was such happy. She was such a happy baby. And um and she would have been about ten months. So what does that mean, Grace? Like she would have been near three as well. And Gracie loved her thing was to jump in the cot with Elsie. And Elsie being such a rough nut. And Gracie would jump up over there and she was so playful with Elsie because Elsie loved it. You know, she just loved her and she does now. She just, she turns herself inside out when she sees Gracie. And so does Grace with Elsie. You know, and that's a beautiful thing. But I do, I remember exactly what she was wearing. I remember where they were. I remember them being in the cot. I remember the time of the day where I sort of went, fuck, I think I'm back. I think I could do this. I'd felt the pressure sort of come off myself because this is it, right? It's only you putting yourself under this pressure and, you know, wearing the mum guilt and trying to put on too many labels all at once. Um, We do it to ourselves. And postnatal is an illness and people do suffer from it. I think you also wanted to protect the people around you, you know. You wanted to protect Sam from that and your family from that. Yeah. But at some point... Like, I'd been through some really big things, but I never got to the point where I did with this, and that's where I went. I knew that it was something more. We got a kitten at the same time, which I always laugh and I've said to anyone that's, you know, having a newborn, don't ever get a kitten or a puppy at the same time. It's fucking terrible. Don't ever put yourself through it. And I did that. And I love cats. And that's when I knew I was, <laughs> there was something wrong because I, I hated this kitten at the time. I was like, I had no feeling. That's why I was laughing. I was, so, I was so numb. But that breakthrough day with my brother was one of the hardest things in my life I've ever been through. With a combination of exercise, acupuncture. Acupuncture, well-being. Talking to yeah, a professional. Yeah, you managed to slowly yeah. come out of it yeah. and start to enjoy life again. Did you find the, I mean, we often talk on our podcast, Am I a Bad Mum? We talk a lot about mum guilt. Did you find that some of those relapses were more about the mum guilt yeah. of what had happened yeah. as opposed to feeling sad or depressed in that moment? Yeah, I think you hold on, you know, as human beings, we do it with everything. If we have some form of trauma in your life, um, you hold on to that feeling. You know, that feeling can be triggered by other things. So to say that I wasn't re-triggered, it would be completely lying. And that mother guilt is something, you know, we joke about, but it's just such a, it is such a strong and very um, uh, relevant topic for all, you know, mums and dads, parent guilt. Um but yeah, there, there definitely was times where I got triggered. Um, I would relapse a little bit in the sense of going, oh, you know, you'd go down that path of going, oh, shit. You know, I'm feeling a little bit like I'm losing control. But in saying that, I would listen to my body. I would listen, you know, try and acknowledge where my headspace was at. And it's understanding what your outlet is, right? My outlet was exercise. So I'd go and I'd do that. I'd literally go for a run, come back. My headspace was better. I'm a better mum. I'm a better wife. I'm a better friend. It gives you mental clarity. It doesn't have to be around. It could be anything. But that was mine. 
So it was a long journey, but let's jump to now. Yeah. Because you have two beautiful girls. Six and eight. Six and eight. Yeah. And I've got the privilege of being your friend and knowing your girls. And I can honestly handle my heart (laughs) say that those two girls are so loved. Thank you. And so beautiful well-mannered, respectful, lovely kids. They honestly do you a a credit. (laughs) You've told your story today and, you know, you went through some really dark and horrible times in your own head. But what you've been able to do and, you know, the biggest thing that has come out of this is that you've got two (laughs) such amazing girls. Thank you. That means a lot because um, they are a reflection of us, right? And that's the part where you go, they're little blank canvases and they're a painting and you're a part of their painting. And you saying that means a lot because, you know, sometimes you get lost in life where you go, holy shit, you know, in the thick of it, in the real world of parenting, you can sometimes get caught up in the small stuff, sweat the small stuff. But yeah, they're good kids. As much as they push back, very strong-minded. I was trying to think of what someone called them the other day, strong-willed. You've got two very strong-willed little girls. And I went, oh, I'm taking that as a compliment. Thank you. (laughs) And you should because you've done such an amazing job with them. This has been a saying that I've always raised my kids. It takes a village to raise children these days. It really does. And how you formulate that village, you know, in everyone's stories, it's a different scene, it's a different scenario, but it does take a village. And and the support part is a really big part of everyone's, you know, like my kids are a great reflection of myself and my husband and what we're doing, but they also are a really big part of our support network, you know, our close friends, you know, like you guys and your daughters and luckily our beautiful parents and then their uncles and aunties as well. Look, I can't take all the credit with it, where it's due, but it's uh, it's a fucking hell of a ride. It has been a roller coaster journey. We're only at the start, but there's always a positive. Like I said, when I was 21, you just got to turn up and do the best job you can do on that day and then start again tomorrow. Rach, thank you so much for sharing your story. You know, anyone that is going through the same or has been through the same, you're a real inspiration to look up to. Thank you. And don't forget, if anyone is out there and they are going through it, there are some really amazing organisations out there that are there and willing and have the phone ready to go. So, you know, don't leave it another minute. Don't leave it another day. Share your story because you're just as important as anyone else. There's some stains on your photo They all cracks on your rusty frame One in five mothers and one in ten fathers will experience perinatal depression and anxiety. Gidget Foundation Australia deliver the programs that are changing lives. Together we can ensure that those most in need receive timely, appropriate and supportive care. Visit gidgetfoundation.org.au